This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What is up, all of my beautiful freaking people? Welcome back to another episode of FML Talk. You guys, I recorded this one so long ago, and I'm so fucking excited that it's finally here because Christy Carlson Romano, all your nostalgia Disney star fame is here today. So sit back, grab a cocktail, and welcome to FML Talk. Oh my God. Wait, how old was the other girl? 19. Can you believe that shit? Hey, this is Gabrielle Stone. Good book. (gasps) He did what? 48 hours? What a dick. Yeah, but have you seen all the photos on her Instagram? And this is FML Talk. Oh, no, she didn't. Okay, you guys, get ready for some Disney magic. (laughs) I'm sure you have seen Christy Carlson Romano recently on TikTok or Instagram or any of the social platforms because she's been killing it on her podcast, which I also did an episode on called Vulnerable, where she's been just having really incredibly open conversations. And I wanted to bring her on to FML Talk because she has had such an interesting life. We talk about how she got into the industry as a child actor, her experience, you know, getting repped by a management at a young age and joining the cast of Even Stevens, where I'm sure you guys all Remember, if at least if you were in my generation, I was a huge fucking even Stevens fan and working very closely alongside Shia LaBeouf. I have quite the interesting. (laughs) I don't even remember if we talked about this on this episode, so forgive me if we repeat it. But I actually did a little tiny part in a film that my mother did for ABC Family back in the day when it was ABC Family called The Christmas Path. And it was one of Shia's first films. And my girlfriend at the time, Sarah and I were playing like dancers at the school that like I was like the lead dancer that took over the the little girl's star part. It was all very silly and very ABC family. But um, I have very fond memories of that shoot because Shia and I would teepee each other's trailers and like just totally fuck with each other on set. <laughs> and uh, then I, you know, grew up and watched him shoot to like huge fucking blockbuster movies. It was kind of wild to see like his whole career path happen. And Christy worked with him at the very like early start of when that career was rising and when her career was rising. And it was a wild fucking time to be on Disney Channel. And we talk about, you know, her experience growing up as a child actor and the experiences that damaged her as a child actor. And we touch on other child stars such as Jeanette McCurdy, Amanda Bynes. I know a lot of you read I'm Glad My Mom Died. I did it in my book club recently. It was phenomenal. So we touch on that. We also discuss her sobriety and how alcohol was kind of guiding decisions that she was making in a negative way and her experience, whether or not she had resentment during the time that she was on Disney and what that experience really taught her. So it's a really great episode 
especially if you have any interest in like the Disney world and like child star industry, if you will. So without further ado, let's bring her on. Christy Carlson Romano, welcome to FML Talk. Hi, thank I'm you for having me. so fucking excited for this conversation. Really? Yes, really. Okay, what? Cool. So we met in a kind of ridiculous way. Not, I mean, I guess it's not ridiculous, but it was ridiculous for me because I was playing a Russian baby stealer. Playing it well, too. Thanks, girl. I trained for that <laughs> accent. So we did a film together, and that was how you and I met. But I have been growing up watching you on my TV, obviously. Really? Yeah, like half my audience, I'm sure. You were like the fucking queen of Disney Channel. Aw, thank you. I'll take it. Uh, so, I mean, I've obviously like spilled out all your credits in the beginning of this intro episode, but kind of give us the rundown, if you can, of how you ended up getting into the industry as a child actor. Jesus. Yeah, um, take me there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I am from a small town in Connecticut called Milford. Mm -hmm. And it is a, you know, middle class, not like Fairfield is pretty close, Westport's pretty close. But my town is much more like middle to lower middle class. And it's a really, really picturesque town that's like old and there was a lot of Italian families, Irish families. We were a melting pot. I mean, there was other people there too. Mm -hmm. And we bordered New Haven. My dad had grown up in Connecticut as, you know, the Romano family and they had a bakery and he had like five brothers. And so it was Mama Romano and six sons. And so, mm -hmm. you know, they were kind of, I guess they were kind of famous in their own right in that they were they had this brand, this family name. So the Romano family has been big in my town for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my mom was a farm girl in Ohio, and they met when my dad went to University of Cincinnati. And uh, they almost didn't end up together. They had a very tumultuous relationship from the start and ended up, <laughs> I guess they ended up having four kids and moving back to Milford and living right next to, you know, the Italian family. So it was a very sort of like intense, chaotic environment that I was kind of born into. Mm. I have three older siblings, and so I'm the youngest. And what was happening at that time, I feel like 1984, just like through the later 80s, is it was this yuppie mentality where like here we were in Connecticut, but where we lived was like, not quite Fairfield County, not quite good enough. Mm. And I feel like the lack of money informed a lot of what ended up being my undoing with like my relationship and my family. Oh, interesting. I think I've only just in some interviews in the last couple of days that I've had with some really amazing women and men, mm -hmm. I've realized that that was so significant and still to this day haunts us as a family. It's, mm. Not the abundance, but the fear and the the lack of thinking. Right. Anyway, so basically I showed talent at like very early age. My mom loves to tell the story <laughs> that I would try to be like, you know, a figure skater like my sisters, or I would try to do other things and I would always end up singing and dancing like on the ice mm -hmm. or like doing something. And she was like, no, I guess this is what she's wanting to do. My sisters did dance competitions and pageants and stuff like that. <laughs> so I ended up excelling at that and getting representation in New York from like this really old school manager who like smoked cigarettes with cigarettes. <laughs> 
And her name was Shirley Grant, and she was in her basement in Queens, and she was like, you're going to be a star. Oh, my God. I love it. And so I'll never forget that viscerally, how important that was, how, how that moment was so real when I got signed by this larger-than-life person. And it's funny because, like, I think the more therapy I will do— mm-hmm. <laughs> I will start to really uncover so much of these memories because so much of it is hazy Mm. as a a person who sort of experienced a lot at a young age. So, yeah. So basically, I would go into the city with my mom. I would, you know, leave my siblings behind and she would commit to a full day of auditions up until I want to say... You know, we started working, going on tour with Broadway companies that would go on their first national tours. Mm -hmm. And so I would go and sort of be very displaced from my family. And I went from one and then I hopped on to another. So I went from Will Rogers Follies to Sound of Music with Marie Osmond because Mm -hmm. the stage manager liked me and he knew I would be cast there. And so I kind of just, I got to work back to back. And how old were you at this time? So on my first traveling tour. Yeah. I was about eight, and we were gone from my family for 14 months. Wow. And then I was gone for about eight or nine more months. And I have, you know, three older siblings. So they were all within a span of four to about eight years older than me. Mm -hmm. And so that really left them without a parent and a significant one because she'd really raised them until I was around. Yeah. And my dad didn't work, really. He worked at that Romano bakery Mm -hmm. that they had. So it was a weird feeling. I, I, I always knew that my mom was very much like codependent on me because we were a team and it was us against everything else kind mm. of thing. And it got a lot more like that over time. Do you think a lot of, I know a lot of kid stars that speak out will go into that their parents felt financially dependent mm-hmm. on them and they were like pushing them to be in the industry to ease the financial restraints? Do you think that that's something that was happening? No, because those are parents that are literally from poverty Mm. and they're putting their children into something as a means to just, they're praying that it works, right? right? It's super desperate. Right. And that's why that's super toxic. Yeah. My family was doing pretty well other than that they were just bad with their money. Mm. You know what I mean? Like my dad couldn't keep a job. He was always sort of an entrepreneur. He had a printing press. Like it was all these like random things. And it ultimately was because he was a really bad collaborator. Mm. He couldn't keep a job. He didn't want to be told what to do. My dad was very larger than life. He was a little bit of a sociopath. But God love him. He was extremely when I say charismatic, mm-hmm. I mean, he could, I think they say he, they could sell gum in a lockjaw ward or something. You know, it's interesting because people used to refer to my ex-husband as a car salesman. So I think whenever people have kind of like lean on that side of sociopathic tendencies, like they're very charming and they're very charismatic. Super weaponized. Yes. Summer is here and life is not slowing down for us anytime soon. One of the things we have continuously relied on making our lives so much easier is factor meals. No prep, no mess, no cleanup meals. I have really been off the wagon with my eating since having my son and for my health, my wellness, and my mental sanity, I have been switching my dinners to more healthy options from factor. 
They have 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, so I never get bored. And Tay is continuously shocked every time he sits down to eat one because they are so freaking tasty. They have breakfast, lunches, dinners, and desserts. It's a treat to have restaurant-quality food that is so easy to prepare and doesn't come with the insane Postmates bill. Head to factormeals.com slash FMLTalk50 and use code FMLTalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code FMLTalk50 at factormeals.com slash FMLTalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Enjoy, FMLers. But dad also did really have this like code of we're the Romano family Mm -hmm. and there's like pride in that. And like what that means is that, you know, we hold ourselves to a standard of excellence, even though he wasn't really teaching us fundamentally that because he just wasn't a very good husband and things were always a mess. We were always, I remember some of my earlier years hearing people shouting about whether we were going to keep the house, lose the house, sell the house. All those things when you're a young kid are really just awful to hear. Yeah. They well, really suck. It really like goes into your subconscious too that will fuck you up later on in life. And I think it all feeds into that narrative of like, I need to help. I need to save the mm. day. Mom thinks I can do this. This might, anything that's a positive means that it can fix the negative in your yeah. life. Yeah. And if you're a kid and the negative is at home, you'll do anything because you don't know what is going to work. Right. So basically, yeah, I mean, we if, if that meant being away from my family, I mean, I, I would have to internalize any of the feelings I would have. I know I don't even think I got a chance to miss being displaced from my siblings. Yeah. My siblings tell me that we were very, very close or they've alluded to that. There's not a lot of pictures. I don't actually have a lot of non-professional pictures of myself as a child. That's so sad. It's fucking so sad. That's really, I mean, my whole childhood is like videotaped and photoed. And that's good. I can't. It might also have to do with the fact that your parents are very aware of. Right. Well, only because they're in the industry, but like I am overcorrecting. And like I have every single day and every time there's a moment that I deem as either a milestone or like something that I fabricated, I'm like right there and I don't hold my camera this way. I hold it that way Mm. because if I hold it that way, it's like a real movie experience. Mm. And I want to kick myself because early on I would hold my camera up uh, when I first had my baby, my first baby, who's Mm. now like five, six. And I feel like that footage is like, Bullshit. Like, how right. do I watch that years from now and feel like that's a home movie? Right. And I get like unnecessarily judgmental of myself about that. Like, I've robbed her of good, clean footage. What's well, my, <laughs> what's my film degree for? No, I, I understand that though because it's very different with like how technology is today when we're like capturing everything on our cell phones. Mm-hmm. Like, that is not the same quality feeling footage as when you pop in to your fucking VHS, you know, your uh, VCR, and you're watching like something that was shot on a camcorder in the 80s. Like <laughs> very different nostalgia there Yeah. than the cell phone I, footage. I don't think there's – even I'm watching other people's footage. Found footage makes us from a different time feel yeah. very weird. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so when was your first kind of like big break where you were like, oh, shit? 
Well, okay. So basically I had been working as a little uh, local New York actress. So like I went from doing all this theater stuff to doing independent films. Mm -hmm. And I did a Woody Allen film where I played a large singing Chiquita Banana. (laughs) (laughs) That was really weird. That's great. I did like a really popular drug awareness campaign. I did something that people would always like throw my way before Disney and they'd be like, aren't you that girl from the anti-smoking commercial? Oh my God. (laughs) And so I did that, but then I was kind of just scooting around and I got this Broadway play called Parade, but it was at Lincoln Center. So even though like union wise, it's considered Broadway and a Broadway Mm -hmm. production, it was at Lincoln Center and they're nonprofit. And it didn't make a ton of money because it was a very serious musical. And it was about Jewish man, Leo Frank, in like the early like 1920s and how he was basically hung by a mob because he was Jewish Mm -hmm. and he was in the South and he was accused of something, I guess, wrongfully. And so it was serious and Footloose just opened and Disney had just really taken over Times Square. So we closed. And when I was 14, they gave us severance pay and my mom and I went out to LA and I had about a month where I could go on, you know, 10 auditions. And then one of those 10 auditions was a Disney pilot. And then that pilot ended up getting picked up. And by the time I was on my 16th birthday, I was on set starting the day of my 16th birthday. Wow. And on what show? On Even Stevens. Yeah. So Even Stevens, co-star Shia LaBeouf. He was about, I want to say he was like 11 at the time, maybe 12. I don't know. Very young. Okay. So random side note. My mom did a ABC Family film called The Christmas Path. It yeah. was right before Even, Even Stevens. Stevens. And she met Shia on that film. He played her son. That's right. And I was on set with her. I was playing like one of the little like mean girls and like was in the dance pageant. And I have this weird vivid memory, but I was obviously in my mom's trailer. I didn't have a fucking trailer because I was this like small little role. But Shia and I would teepee each other's trailers. Fucking, like, on he the did on. that to me. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. He totally did that to me. I gave him that idea. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but my mom, after she worked with him, was like, this kid's so talented, and then like helped him get with an agent after that. Okay. The so, agent? The Crosby? I don't know which agent. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because he's with like the same, well, he's with the same manager. Oh, really? Yeah, that he's been with for a really long wow. time. What was your experience like on that show at 16? Because that was a massive Disney hit. Well, massive for you, massive not for them, because Lizzie McGuire was mm. way more popular and did way more for them in terms of numbers and competing with Nickelodeon. And mm-hmm. like their agenda was very, very firm in that they were in a ratings battle. You know, mm-hmm. these were, I think, executives that probably didn't love the fact that they had to work at a children's company, mm-hmm. but they liked working for Disney kind of thing. So it was kind of like uh, they were in like an adult ratings race with children's programming. Right. But I will say that because of that, they were like taking initiative and in, in risks in these types of shows. So my show had like an amazing showrunner and Matt Dearborn was a very serious guy. I guess he he was a part of 90210 and he just did not come from this world, but he had the sensibility to create a comedy that was rooted in like a vaudevillian type of I don't know, farce or whatever you want to call it, but like the boy was obsessed with like old school comedy. Mm -hmm. And so like at the time we had like Kramer on his wall and it was like the, his like icon and Mm -hmm. idol. 
And then it was all through the lens of, I think, our showrunner and how the boy had an older sister and a brother, older brother, who was like perfect at everything. So it was originally it was called Spivey's Kid Brother. Hmm. And it was really not about me. It was about him and like us as a family. But then they did test market research on the pilot. And they were like, no, no, we need to really truly make this about both of them Mm. because we have more of a female audience than we do, you know. And I think like analytics were way more complicated and and expensive to find. They Mm -hmm. would do these like these like testings where they'd call people in and get like information. I'm sure they still do it, but it's probably so much more easy to like collect that data. Right. Yeah. So so there you go. And I just remember meeting him too. And I think Christmas Path Mm -hmm. was was something he had done like right before. Yeah. And so he came in with two different colors of hair. Oh, interesting. I didn't understand what that was. Not like side part, one side, the other. More like he had like weird frosted tips that like didn't match uh, his hair. I was like, what the fuck, this kid? And I came in with the like- 90s. <laughs> I, I, yeah, but it, it almost seemed like he was like a feral child mm. from like Venice Beach. <laughs> and I came in from this very rigid yeah. East Coast- I have to wear a Ralph Lauren suit to this because it tells me that she's a preppy girl. And I just, I nailed it, really. Yeah. Because I really was her. Mm. I really was her. But underlying that, I think, was two kids that were fucking terrified. Mm. I think he had to get that show. Yeah. And I think I had to get that show. Right. Did you guys get along on set? Not particularly. I think, you know, I think our personalities were different. And then I also think that the characters, it was, Again, like with child actors and young actors, the experience of art imitating life, imitating art, you know, it's like why people who are in movies together hook up. Right. It's like, oh, this is nice. This is a nice feeling I'm having this person. Okay, I guess we'll shack up now. Mm -hmm. And it's like not real a lot of times. And then it just is like a fling or something. And it's like with us, it was that art imitating life thing where it was like we felt very kindred to each other, but then it wasn't really rooted in anything. Right. And like he was friendly with other people for a long time from the cast, but he and I just kind of always had like a quiet animosity towards one another. Interesting. Yeah. Where do you think that came from? Fear. Mm. I think it's it goes back to fear. I think he was made aware. I'm not sure by who. Mm-hmm. But he was also a kid. Hold on a second now. I wonder now. Because (laughs) the way that he tells his story Mm -hmm. is that he was the one who opened a phone book when he was eight years old and called up a manager. And he says, and he generally says, I think, that like he's the one who wanted his career and he's the one who did that. Mm -hmm. And it was like, because what I always felt about him was that he was almost so ambitious that it was like, whoa, this guy's Mm -hmm. like intense even right. at like 12 years old right right so i don't know so basically he he was extremely extremely ambitious and i don't know where it came from yeah but i do think he was painfully aware of the fact that he was now my co-star mm. and that he was yes he might have been number one right but like i also had a storylines and got it got it so your podcast now the vulnerable podcast is really bringing a lot of important stories forward from child stars that have been in the industry and all the crazy shit that goes on. I just read Jeanette McCurdy's book. Yeah. Have you read it? I'm currently trying to write a memoir and I've been actively choosing not to read Jeanette's book. Mm. 
I did listen to, however, a podcast called Celebrity Memoir Book Club or something. Uh And they do a really good job of basically giving you the Cliff Notes version. Got it. Really good job. Yeah. Really thorough. And I love their point of view on stuff. So Mm -hmm. shout out to you ladies. (laughs) But like I saw a lot of myself in that Mm. recounting. Yeah. And I fear that if I go ahead and just dive into it, that structurally. Right. I'll be influenced. Totally. I I truly do not want to be. I want her stuff that she worked on in the way that she's presenting it with the words and the tone. I want that to be hers. You know, she was she was doing a one woman show for a long time Uh to workshop this. Yeah. And so that's where I'm at with that. Yeah. um, But I'm very supportive, like through social media. Like I've been like, yo, support her by her. Yeah. But she doesn't need my endorsement. No, (laughs) I mean, it's a huge success and it's an amazing book. I think it's so interesting and I'm so glad to hear that you're writing about your experience because not a lot of child stars that have been through this feel like they can fully come forward in a vulnerable way. And that's kind of the space that you're giving them on your podcast, which is so great. Like your entire experience growing up as a child actor, was there anything really damaging that happened to you? Oh, it's a really, really good question. Because you, it's hard to just pick one thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the entirety of the experience is what is traumatizing because there's no support system for in most what, of in us. In what sense? Like, my parents couldn't possibly understand, especially with three other kids. Like, mm-hmm. they, they couldn't possibly not make mistakes right. or, like, they, you know, it's just like they were set up to fail in that regard as parents. I do believe that. My mom really tried to her credit. I've mentioned this before, but she tried tried to anchor me through education. She would always instill in me the need to go to college. And college ultimately was not a good experience. It was almost even more traumatizing to kind of take me out of one Mm. sort of chaotic social environment to like another one. Right. Where I was almost targeted in a way, just very othered you know, and then I kind of left to go back into the industry kind of is a weird time. I just, what I do right now on my podcast is I'm collecting data Mm -hmm. through bearing witness and like sort of just talking to these folks, not just to get the tea. Yeah. Although the tea comes out and it helps views. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of sucks about it is that I'm kind of at the behest of the way that people are wired to mm-hmm. want to tune into something as long as Britney Spears says they should or Dan Schneider's name is mentioned. Right. Or, you know what I mean? And it's like, you know how it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, I do want to promote my stuff, but I very much want people to be clear on my stance on the fact that we don't have enough advocacy and we don't have enough data There's no research Mm -hmm. about how many of these kids are suffering from trauma once they grow out of it. Right. And there's no rehabilitation program. And there's just not. And yet these are the people that your kids look up to Mm -hmm. and grow up with them making mistakes. Like Miley Cyrus went off the fucking rails a long time ago. Right. And a lot of kids probably went with her because they were like, that's Miley. Miley's Mm. just being Miley. Oh, Miley's doing ecstasy. Cool. Okay. I'll normalize. And I love Miley Cyrus. Yeah. I'm not going to hate on her. But well, it's hard when you have to grow up. Like, I mean, look, I did a bunch of crazy shit and partied and went off and like did stupid stuff. I just didn't 
couldn't have the entire world watching me. Yeah. That's a big fucking amount of pressure when you're going through your adolescence, which is like the time that you're supposed to be making mistakes. I got to be honest too. Like I think that I was lucky that I, that we did not have social media when I was kind (laughs) of struggling. You know, yeah. and they and paparazzi was never really interested in me. So I got to be drunk at a club and like stumble out and like right. nobody cared. And so I was just kind of always just under the radar. Yeah. And even though I was at the clubs and I was there, it it's an interesting place to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think from the stories that you've gathered from child stars that are coming forward to kind of talk about their experiences. Do you feel like there's a fear to come out and speak? And if so, what's the fear? Because like you think about like you you look at Jeanette's book and like it's such a crazy success and she's like really like told a bunch of stuff that went down. Why hasn't, you know, like Amanda Bynes done that? Why hasn't child stars that we've seen go through the fucking ringer come out and say like, this is what you weren't seeing behind the scenes? What's the fear in doing that, do you think? So in my endorsement I reserve myself to know that everybody has a different process of where they're at with their trauma. Yeah, sure. And so Amanda could be very well in the throes of her, you know, healing process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, recently, you know, Aaron Carter passed away. Yeah. And a lot of people are talking about it. And, you know, he was supposed to come on my podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. And he stood us up. And we were waiting. And so I went and I just did an episode talking about accountability and I never mentioned his name. Oh, wow. And so instead, while I've been here in town this time, I went ahead and did sort of a reveal Mm -hmm. that we're going to put in the beginning of that episode. And I'm going to be like, it was him, even though I don't mention him, Mm because mostly I talk about my sobriety and like that struggle that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's multi-layered. I think like that's why a lot of these people are just not organized enough to do it. I mean, you know, like the healing through your writing is transcendent. Yeah. And a lot of these folks like are stuck in ego and they can't get out of their own way. And there's a lot of traps that exist for their mind Mm -hmm. so that they can't even trust themselves. And they don't have like they were too busy working back to back to have the tools of how to process that trauma that was being inflicted. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's tough. Yeah. And I think that trauma does compound if you don't fucking intervene. Oh, 100%. And so we're talking about people who have like like this trauma who've been told to suck it up. And I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, like Hollywood does not want you to speak up. They, yeah. I think maybe now I'm a part of a movement here where I think TikTok gave me a little bit of confidence, a little bravado mm-hmm. to be open about, hey, you know, there was like a trend the other day going on and it was like, I don't even fucking remember. It was like, oh shit, I wish I could pull it up right now. <laughs> but it was like something very personal and... I never really used to talk about stuff like that. I always used to just be kind of fun and pandering to like, mm-hmm. I'm going to do something nostalgic for you guys. And I was originally starting YouTube cooking stuff where I would like invite a celebrity on and then make a dish from their TV show. And it was like, wow, this is so fun and beautiful yeah. and everyone's happy. And then and then what would happen was is because I was calling in like Lelaine from Lizzie McGuire who works at a, you know, a weed shop now. And mm-hmm. And had kind of a mixed experience, you know, and that, and yet we're there and I see this like look in her eyes where like I ask a question and she can't answer it Mm. or there's more to the story and I can't talk about it because we're fucking making cookies. Right. And, or spaghetti. And I'm like, fuck. 
So I would come away from making that content feeling empty mm. and being like, I love food. I love decor. I love being a little domestic bitch. Yeah. But <laughs> I really do. It's it's silly. But but it's so weird that here we are. Like I never would have thought that I had value, that my point of view had value enough. But I will tell you this. So a long time ago when I was like slamming my head against the wall to get hired in my 20s, I would say I was like 22, 21, 22. I was trying everything I could to like manifest. Mm -hmm. I was in like the Beverly Hills Playhouse and like their whole thing was like, you know, there was a lot of Scientology principles in there because Milton Katselis was a Scientologist and he passed away. Anyway, so one of the things that they would do is they would have like these admin groups where you would come together every week and you and like five other people would be like, hey, so what did you do last week? What did you do this week? What's carrying over? And that was actually, when you think about the tools, like I think that's why Scientology is so sexy to so many folks here in Hollywood is because it makes you get your shit together and it gives you that mentorship. It gives you that community. Mm. It demands of you, your mind, your body to be clean and like all that stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, it's one more thing out here that people are just looking for to be found. And so there are a lot of really good principles with it. But anyway, so we did certain things like that at the, at the Playhouse and I would try to outcreate, like outcreation and manifestation was a big thing. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to create what I called it was the mafia for like Disney kids. And what I wanted to do was have some sort of a talk show. Mm -hmm. And I can't, you're like the first person I think I'm ever telling this to, but it's in my notes and like somewhere I'll find this journal where I really wanted to be a safe space for these people yeah. to come to. And we're talking, this goes back like 20, I don't even know, maybe like, I guess less than 20 years, but like 15 years or so that I've had vulnerable on my heart, but yeah. didn't realize that this was actually what I wanted to do. Oh my God. I think it's, hey, look, everything happens for a reason and the timing I'm sure is meant to be right now, but mm -hmm. it's so important because I know how much trauma happens and we've seen the effects of what that looks like to kids that have gone through it in the industry and don't get help right? and don't have that outlet. So I think it's really beautiful that you're doing that. Mental health is not as stigmatized now. Like to talking no. about mental health yeah. and this term of unpacking, we have like a much larger scope of consciousness now. Yeah. Thankfully. Well, we have to. Yeah. I mean, we're all fucking broken at this point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're like, join the fucking club. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about your sobriety <laughs> and what prompted that decision. I am sober from alcohol and actually everything else. Like, I'm legitimately really sober. Yeah. But I think most importantly was having alcohol in my life. Mm -hmm. And then in just in general, nothing will serve me now that I've fallen in love with my sobriety. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I got pregnant and that's when I was sober. That's when I got sober. Was it was it a problem before that? Yeah, what? I think so. I mean, I wouldn't wake up wanting to drink. I wouldn't like. I think Jeanette was talking about her. She, at one point, she was taking like six or seven shots while she yeah. was also binging and purging. And so it was like, it's like that's that's like yeah, different for me. It was more like I want to go to hide and I want to get fucking shit faced. And like I would go into New York because that's where my family was still, and I would go out with my siblings or I would go out with friends from New York. And I would only know one way to be, you know, I would only know one way to have a good time. And that was to drink at least five to six, you know, orange juice and vodkas. Mm -hmm. And then like 
I just think overall it was, here's my thing. At having alcohol in my life was coloring every decision that I made. And it wasn't even necessarily the effects of alcohol. You know what I'm saying? Like it was just that I wasn't facing, I feel like a generational curse <laughs> mm -hmm. that like has been handed down to my anxious parents and chaotic parents and overspending parents to now me where I'm like, I'm not getting it. And actually most of my family has not really completely under come to understand this. I'm the only one that is sober in my family. Mm. And so I'm the only person I think that's really doing the work when it comes to, I cannot be the same. I have to do something different. Like I have to break the cycle. Yeah. I have to break the cycle. Yeah. Because I, I think I have a lot more against me in terms of my nervous system kind of being a little more immature. Mm -hmm. I, I started doing EMDR with a therapist, which was really informing me of just how sad and quiet my my higher power was. Mm -hmm. Like my, my resilience is just not, I, I have everything that you see about me is some sort of a, I think like some sort of like a coping mechanism. Oh, interesting. I'm getting a lot better at being authentic and like showing people who I am. Cause I really love, like, I love you. Mm -hmm. And like, I really love the people of course who support me, but like, I love people, but I also, I, I can't handle it. Mm. I like can't. it's overwhelming. Totally overwhelming. I take rejection of any kind from people so personally. Mm. And so, cause I was bullied a lot. And so I just fucking, and it's really hard to connect without feeling like I'm not worthy or this is going to end mm -hmm. or yeah, something's that's, wrong with me. That's so interesting because when we shot that film together, that was, God, it was like right after I came back from Europe. So I think like early 2018 and I haven't seen you in person since then. The difference in that I see in you from that experience to now, granted, like we're casual, we're sitting down to do a podcast versus being on set, but is massive. Really? Yeah. Holy and not shit. that you were like some <laughs> raging bitch on set. You were very kind to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we like chatted when we weren't working, but uh -huh. you definitely had a like protective kind of like don't get too close. Terrified. Vibe. Okay. And that I don't get that from you anymore. Wow, that's weird because I you're like, I still feel like I have a fucking wall up. <laughs> no, actually, because it's weird because I really liked you. Oh, well, you that's know what I'm good. saying? Like, and I remember our yeah. time together. I remember being in the scenes together mm -hmm. and I remember you being on set. And so I actually, I had my birthday on that set. I think I remember that. We were in the downtown yeah. baby factory or whatever. The baby factory. Yeah. So bad. <laughs> and, and I mean, I guess, I guess on set, I'm probably really nervous. Because I don't get the privilege of being on set that much. I don't get to work that much. Mm. I'm really bad uh, anxiety-wise too, like with, with auditions. Oh my God, the worst. Me me too. Yeah. I, I really don't love it at all. Like so. I, there's moments where I've gone into audition and like genuinely feel like I'm going to have a panic attack. It's bad, yeah. It's horrible. Which I guess when you think about it, because so much more of them now are, you know, like you can record them from home. Yeah. But I still don't even get that many. Mm -hmm. To be honest, like, I think it's been a long time since I can say that, like, oh, yeah, I've had multiple auditions this, right. you know, this month, I think, or not month, but like, yeah, week. Yeah. But yeah, still, though, things have slowed down. And I mean, I know I'm getting older, so that's fine, too. But I just, I don't know what my plan is right now to be an on-camera actor. Mm -hmm. I haven't really given it much thought. But like, as a creator, I'm very clear 
on what what is happening and the, yeah. and the things I'm trying to say. And yeah, it's pretty and cool. that's important. Yeah. That's where the fulfilling stuff is anyways. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the stuff when it comes from your voice. I'm curious if when you look back on your time, you know, when you were on Disney and you were working all the time and you were really well known, mm -hmm. do you have any resentment or regret around that period or do you look back on it fondly? I purged a lot of the feeling that I never really gave a voice to on the YouTube that I was doing, mm -hmm. like all these walk and talk things where I would like be like, this is why I'm not, you know, friends with so-and-so anymore. Right. And what it's like to hate your co-star or like all these crazy things that I knew would help the algorithm. And I knew we were extremely smart. And when I say we, I mean me and Brendan Rooney, my husband and producing partner, where we would sit and have development meeting after development meeting and be like, what's my brand? What do I have to say? And then I would have to actually stand in front of a camera and walk around my neighborhood or a park near my neighborhood mm -hmm. and uh, like basically spill my guts. Yeah, I remember seeing the videos. They went very, very viral. <laughs> they were. <sighs> it was a second coming. I had like all sorts of like, I had to get a press person just mm -hmm. so that I could manage it. And it was, it was my time to recognize that I was, I don't know, like it or not, like these are my emotions about this. So Disney was really supportive. And I was always very, very aware of my legacy and that like, I hope that Kim Possible comes back. Right. Or just in general, I have, I've had in the past relationships with executives at Disney who are still there. And I wanted to direct, I wanted to produce. They were mm -hmm. having me shadowing. Like, I just didn't think it was like, cut my nose off to spite my face and yeah. be like, let me sensationalize the D, you know, yeah. like the big D with the ears. Like, I, I just didn't think that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Also I, love that you call it like the big D because all I can think about is like a giant penis. But you're that talking was the about first. Disney Channel and that's fucking hilarious. That was me. the first time. <laughs> I've never called it that before. Well, I'm, we should coin it because that's the great. big D with ears. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. No, I can't stop thinking that. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, I don't know. I love Disney and I love a lot about Disney. And I think that, you know, Disney in the entertainment, you know, they have a lot of arms. Yeah. And so right now Disney Channel isn't even Disney Channel. It's Disney branded partners mm -hmm. or something like that. And they are taking a new shape because of streaming. Mm -hmm. And because Disney Plus exists, it's almost like Netflix where they could yeah. probably reboot yeah. You know, something that I've done and, yeah. and have it live there first before it becomes even a series. Yeah. I don't know. I think Disney is a great place. And I think the further down the road I go with the advocacy work, I really trust that Disney's going to be open minded mm -hmm. to hearing us out. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, me and the other girls that I'm joining up with mm -hmm. who are, you know, former Disney actresses. Right. And I think that that and not this isn't just about the big D. It's about. With any ears. form with the years. It's about any form of the industry is that's why people are afraid to sometimes come forward and tell their stories because they're like, well, but then I'm going to be blacklisted. Then I'm going to not be hired again. Then I'm going to, you know. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's a catch 22. It's like if you're going to try and be in this industry, how are you then going to speak out about it and still be a part of it? Yeah. Right. That's tough. Yes, it is tough. I think that we can, and from what I'm gathering from conversations I'm having, we can, like both things can be true, right? right. Like, like there could have been trauma on sets that mm -hmm. were either Disney, Nickelodeon or something else, Yeah. but that, you know, 
they are also still very interested in optimizing their protocols. Yeah. So that their future sets are, you know, up to snuff or or that they are assisting in the mental health process for these children. Yeah. I have faith. I truly do. Because I think it's like, those are your employees. You're going to want your employees incentivized. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have (laughs) hope and faith in that as well. Yeah. Christy, as we end. We're ending? We're ending. I know. Oh my God, what the hell? It flies by so fast. Um, (laughs) What's one thing kind of like now that you've rebranded and you've got this entire kind of new life, what's one thing that you really want people to know about you as a woman now? Oh, shit. I think the thing that just flew through my mind when you asked me that was that I love my kids. Oh. I think that that was the first thing that just I always go to. Yeah. I think my kids are a big reason uh, as to why I'm doing this mm. because I can make content with my husband. I can I can be a YouTube person or whatever I can do, I can do. I can do sponsored content. I can do all the things. Selena Gomez just recently had a documentary come out. Yeah, I saw it. She was so mad at that one interviewer because she's like, you know what it felt like? It felt like Disney. And I'm like, yeah, like I can uh. do that. Like I can do and I can be the product, but like Trust, that's actually like a talent. Like that's a skill. 100%. She doesn't want to do it, but I'm making a great living. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So we're very different Mm -hmm. in that way where I have tolerance for this Mm. sort of hosting or, you know, being the brand ambassador. Like I'm okay with it. Yeah. But my kids and what I leave the world, Mm. you know, having them look back and be like, you know, my, my mom, like the way you talk about your mom, Mm -hmm. I want my kids to talk about me like that. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I'm going to tell her that you said that. (laughs) That's really awesome. I really do. I think you guys are goals for me. So thank you. That's awesome. Can you tell everybody where they can (laughs) find you and all about the podcast, all the info that they need? Sure. Um, I, you know, Vulnerable podcast is really fun and we're trying to build up our fan base there and we're currently in studio here. But so go ahead and check us out. You can, you know, follow Vulnerable Podcast on TikTok, but then you can follow me on YouTube. You can follow me as I think it's Christy Carlson Romano on TikTok. And then I think it's the Christy Carlson Romano on Instagram. But in general, your girl is everywhere. So <laughs> call <laughs> me, name me. Come fa- Stop it. <laughs> Say it again. Say it again. Um, okay. <clears throat> hey, Gabrielle, what's the sitch? I'm dead. <laughs> and on that note, thank you, Christy Carlson Romano, for being on FML Talk. We love you. I love you too. I want to thank Christy so much for coming on and being so open and no pun intended vulnerable. (laughs) Um, Make sure you guys go check out her podcast. Um, She's doing really great stuff on that show that I really respect. And I just think it's so important that we start talking about and having a more open conversation about what is happening to kids in the industry when they are not treated properly. Um, We've seen it so many times where these child stars go down these fucking horrible roads as adults. And like there has to be something in place for their mental health. And one of the things she's doing so brilliantly on her podcast is bringing stories around this to light and really advocating for those kids. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and got some good stuff out of it. I love you so much. I will see you next week.
All right, FMLers, if you don't want to miss an episode, make sure to follow on your favorite podcast app. And if you're loving the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a review. You can keep up with me on Instagram at Gabrielle Stone or the podcast page at FML Talk Podcast. For all the merch and books signed personally by me, you can shop the FML line on eatpreyfml.com. And as always, have a fucking self-love cocktail on me. Cheers. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a fertility physician and co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. We will talk about a wide range of topics, including the menstrual cycle, your hormones, infertility, IVF, mental health, and well, beyond. So join us and become part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. This podcast has been brought to you by Podcast Nation.